Welcome to a Neon Jazz interview with alto saxophonist Doc Stewart. Along with the music, Doc is a prominent ER doctor with the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix. Raised on a farm outside of Chicago, he won a talent competition at Disneyland in high school and went on to fall in love with jazz. But it has been both medicine and jazz that has kept him going for all of these years. He recently released his new album, Code Blue, which is a tasty jazz listen, and talks about that and many more things that make the good doctor play in the improv realm of jazz while delving into the precise nature of the ER. Dig it. So I'm going to go ahead and dive in here and ask you first, you grew up around Chicago. How did that lend to your love of jazz? Well, um, I actually, well, I grew up probably in Rockford. I was born in uh, Chicago and went to Rockford. And until I was 12 years old, um, I lived on a farm. And then we moved to California when I was 12. But I picked up the saxophone when I was 10, and there was a band director at this Winnebago school that was just tremendous and he just really encouraged me and he saw the talent and all that sort of thing and so that's probably how that part uh, influenced me you know just as far as living there my family all played musical instruments and all so then I you know I had to pick something up too and nobody's playing the sax so I picked the sax right on so you were the sixth of nine children a lot of competition going on huh yeah a lot of competition yeah my next older brother he's probably the other the most competent he was playing trumpet and doing really well my sister was more of a singer and then other guys, you know, my brothers were playing strings and fiddle and guitar and, you know, piano. Everybody played piano. My mom yeah. was a piano player, so she kind of taught everybody that. Very cool. You know, your story sounds kind of like a fairy tale with the mix of <laughs> medicine and music. And it sounds like in the beginning it started out, you won a contest at Disneyland as a kid. Talk to me about yeah. that a little bit. Well, when we moved to, to California when I was 12, I quickly dived into the, the California scene. I started surfing and skating, and we lived right there by, um, right by Disneyland. And so I kind of, you know, never dreamed that I'd be actually working there, but then a talent contest came up there, and uh, I went and I auditioned, not thinking much of it, and then I, and then I won it. So it was kind of a funny thing, and so then they put a, a little talent showcase on and then I got to know some of the players in the area better, and then they just started calling me to sub, um, you know, in the bands at Disneyland, and, and the rest is, is history. So it was really good. And what's really cool about Disneyland, it, uh, you get to do everything. I got to play flute, clarinet, piccolo, sax, got to play in the spiffy saxes. It was like a, a fun little uh, sax quintet. And then, of course, the Disney band and then special events and all. It was, it was a really good experience. Speaking of players, uh, in high school, it says you shared the stage with Louis Bellison and Tashiko Akiyoshi. What was that like to be next to talents like that at a young age? <laughs> you know, the way that I describe that, it's like the first time I had to, as a medical student, had this go in, go in with a neurosurgeon. I, I just felt I'm really out of place and underqualified and all that. But everybody's really good about, you know, kind of making you feel, you know, competent and all. And some of the other players, they were like, they, they say, hey, Bebopper, you know, how's it going? You know, they did they kind of made me feel comfortable with it, and, uh, but I was terrified. Yeah, I bet, I bet. So I think it would be an understatement to say that you love Cannonball Adderley's sound. What is it about his sound that's so alluring to you? Uh, you know, it's, it's the, let's see if I can sum that up. It, it, his sound I, I consider sweet. A lot of people consider it, you know, kind of harsh, but I consider it sweet. And the way he described it himself, it, it's the guts legato. It's the way it's so, you know, it can be really forceful and staccato, but then at the same time, it's as sweet as Benny Carter. You know, it's just a really beautiful sound, and I, and I love that part of it. So we know you're a doctor, or we're going, the audience is going to know before this interview. 
give me a synopsis of your medical career up to this point. Well, uh, one thing I want to make clear is that I was a musician before I was a doctor. So some people are saying, you know, how can you play so well and be a doctor? Because a lot of doctors went straight out of high school to, you know, to college and medical school and then, you know, kind of played along the way. But I was, you know, a professional musician until, until uh, you know, 23 when I decided to go back to medical school. So I was a returning student. And I went to um, UC Irvine, and then I went to USC for medical school and did my residency at UC Davis. And when I moved up to Davis is probably when most of my musical ties were cut. You know, if, if somebody calls you for a gig and you can't make it, you know, they don't call you anymore. Yeah. So, so that became medicine. And I, you know, I put my heart and soul into medicine, emergency medicine in particular, and then eventually took a job at Mayo Clinic out here in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, continue to work in emergency medicine, but as far as what I sort of, my specialty now, I guess, has a lot to do with um, quality. Um, I'm director of quality. I'm the vice chair of the emergency department, and I'm really responsible for a lot of the government regulatory uh, requirements that the hospital has to to uh, to uh, comply with, so to speak. So we call the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services as certain measures that we the hospitals have to obtain or achieve in order to, to get their full payment and all that other stuff. So. Sure. So it's safe to say you're really good with your hands. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so if I don't cut them off doing my woodworking, that's what I'm always afraid of. But Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So let's let's get into your music career. What? Uh, give me kind of a trajectory of, you, you know, before you went back to medical school and your career up to this point releasing your latest album. What uh, What's that look like? Well, you know, the... The reason I went to medical school, and you're going to laugh at this, but the reason I went to medical school was I wanted a good day job because I just couldn't make ends meet as a musician. It was, you know, you could make 50 to 100 bucks a day, but, you know, you add that up in 30 days and working every day, you're still not making good money. Yeah. That's why Disneyland was good. Yeah. Um, and then I knew that uh, I'd probably have to go on the road, and I already had two kids, and uh, I just didn't, I didn't think the road life was for me. Um, and so that's why I kind of made the left turn into medical school. But when I was, the plan was all along, I was going to continue to kind of keep the chops up. And when I turned 50, I was going to retire. Uh, that was sort of the plan and then just do the music. But I didn't know I was going to end up with five kids in college and all the other expenses and all that. So I'm kind of handcuffed right now to, to continue to be the doctor thing, yeah. do the doctor thing. Uh, but, um, my wife reminded me, you know, you're a little behind on your music uh, here. You need to get this going. So in 2005, I put out a, a CD called Phoenix, a tribute to Ken Ball Adderley, and that did really well. And I was, I should have probably followed up on the wave of, of that, but I didn't. I waited, unfortunately, another eight years to do this CD. And uh, But this is all in the sort of in the plan of, of my transition. I want to I, I start playing, you know, at least part-time. Yeah. But, you know, all these years, I, I just haven't been playing. I've just been doing the, the uh, hospital stuff. So talk to me about Code Blue. What was some of the inspirations behind the music? You said there was a lapse between CDs. Talk to yeah. me about the evolution and this album in particular. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stories behind Code Blue. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's probably more than we have time for in this interview, but I'll, I'll give you the highlights. The, the follow-up CD was supposed to be Code Blue, and we were going to have, uh, it was just going to be all titles that had the word blue in it and then pull in the code blue because of the doctor thing. And then it wasn't going to necessarily be blues, but it would be like, you know, blue boss uh, and 
you know, kind of blue, you know, things like that, and just be a real eclectic collection of tunes that have the word blue in it. Yeah. And it was going to be probably a quartet or a quintet, but I never got around to making it. And then uh, I, I ran in again to my old buddy, Matt Kattengub, who arranged half the tunes on the new, tune, on the new uh, CD. Um, I was uh, kind of a little guest artist with the, the, the Phoenix Symphony, and he was doing his Pops concert. And after it was through, you know, he kind of said, you know, how come you're not doing, you know, your thing? And I'm like, I, I probably should be doing it. So it was decided we're going we're gonna to do the, the thing. But Matt is a big band arranger, and, and that's where I got the idea. Well, maybe we should just do this as a big band instead of a small thing. And then we had also had a reunion concert um, a year before with uh, Tom Kubis. And Tom Kubis, um, as you know, is a fantastic arranger and uh, musician as well. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know, let, let's let's just do it this way. Tom will do half the album. You do the other half of the album, and we'll do it a, a big band. And I'll go to L.A. and it'll be all the guys we used to play with when we were kids. And we'll call it, you know, it'll be a reunion. And I said, you know, that's kind of like a resuscitation. So it became big band resuscitation because uh, kind of bringing a big band back to life. This is probably more the Tom Kubis big band than it is the Matt Kattenberg big band. Uh, but they, you know, we we split up the arrangements. Um, and uh, I'm just so happy with it. It's just, it's just, it's just perfect. Um, a story that happened along the way, um, uh, as Tom Kubis was doing some of the arrangements um, for the for the, his side of the album, um, he got diagnosed with kidney cancer and uh, was, he was thinking he couldn't finish the project and would need some help. So I was helping him using the Mayo Clinic and all. And uh, and my knowledge started getting through this. And so he actually wrote, you know, the Code Blue Suite, which is four tunes. He actually wrote that and arranged it, uh, you know, during a real time when he was undergoing surgery. And I was just, it was, so that there's a lot of inspiration in those, in that, in that Code Blue Suite. Absolutely. Absolutely. So live performing, do you perform live much? Do you, where do you perform? Uh, you're right. I, I perform live in my closet. <laughs> I, you know, the only way I keep my chops up or have kept my chops up during all this is is doing my transcriptions. I'll transcribe Cannibal Ivory solos and then I'll um, and then I'll proofread them. And I, you know, I try to proofread them all the way up to to uh, to the to the normal tempo. And that's probably it. I it, there's a college band that I'll play occasionally out here too. That it kind of helps me keep my reading up. But I, I really don't gig and I don't really want to do casuals. You know, I don't know a lot of the popular tunes. I just know jazz tunes. Sure. And so not much goes on. You know, I'll sit in at different clubs. Um, when I go to different, uh, like, medical conferences or something like that, I'll bring my sax and maybe sit in at a club or come to L.A., sit in the club. But, yeah, I don't, I don't play regularly at all. I'm gotcha. in my closet. What was it yeah. like to give your autograph for the first time? Oh, you know, I, 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 think, I'm, I think people think higher of me than, than actually they should. I, I don't think I'm all that great of a sax player. And I think when people... Um, see me, they get all excited. I think they get excited partly because um, of the versatility, and, or not the versatility, the, the, the breadth of, of things that I do. Somebody once told me, they said, you know, you really sound like one of the guys. And that was like a compliment to me because I, you know, I just, I'm just a sax player and I'm, I wasn't doing it for a career. And when they said, you know, you sound like one of the guys, that's, that's a pretty big compliment for me. Yeah. But, but, uh, I hate the the compliment. You know, you're you're pretty good for a doctor. You know, I just I don't like that compliment because that's not a compliment for right. me. Right. You know, I just to me it's the real thing. It's just my heart and soul are into this, and I play because I love to play and I love jazz. 
and and I'm you know I'm not do I, I don't want to do a, a halfway job at it. My my I'm, I have pretty high standards for my playing. Absolutely. So if you had to make a choice right now, you were woken up in the middle of the night, and someone said you have to make a choice right now between music or medicine. What would you pick? Uh, probably code blue. <laughs> <laughs> No, it has to be. It's the merger of it because I, you know, my calling is also medicine. I've had some some incredible experiences in touching people's lives every day. You, you have no idea, you know, when somebody comes in with a little ache and pain, and then you tell them they've got terminal cancer, you know, or something like this. I mean, you change people's lives from from yesterday to today, mm-hmm. and that's such a privilege. And then other times where you know you'll save somebody's life, they come in no vital signs, and you resuscitate them, and, and they go home from the hospital, and, and you just can't. I mean, that stuff is just so cool, but then, you know, you're playing Cherokee at 320, and then you pull off this bridge that's just perfectly lined up and all that. I mean, it just gives me chills thinking about it. So it's kind of all got to, it's kind of all got to stay, I think. I don't think it's going to ever be either or. Yeah. I I do want to do more than music, though. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Who's your hero? A hero on saxophone. I think, well, I have, I have three definite heroes on saxophone. It's Charlie Parker, Cannonball Adderley, and Phil Woods. Mm-hmm. They're definitely my heroes. In fact, I, I just finished uh, revising the Charlie Parker Omni book. It's a collection of solos that um, Jamie Ambersall put together. And uh, I just, uh, because I've been doing so many transcriptions, I, I was able to proofread these and make them absolutely flawless or near flawless. Mm-hmm. Phil Woods, I got to meet and hang out with Phil Woods and... Uh, I just—he was all inspiring in his love for Charlie Parker. He has his horn. He married his wife. All these different things, and it's just really cool to see him um, uh, in person. So that's that's the music side, I think. So if you could go back in time and meet one musician from any era, who would it be and why? Well, you, you, you know, I never met Cannonball Adderley. Yeah. <laughs> as, as weird as it seems, as I've collected so much of his paraphernalia, I have, I have nearly all his music. Uh, I've cataloged it. I have uh, 12 uh, volumes of transcriptions from 1955 to 1960, and uh, a bunch more transcriptions after that. And uh, you know, people ask me, "Man, you, you, you know, you haven't even met that guy. Why, you know, why, why are you so into him?" And I just love his playing, and I would just love to meet him. I will tell you, I've been trying to get a hold of uh, uh, Nat Adderley Jr. That's that's um, his nephew, and uh, unsuccessful. But I just there's. I would just love to sit down sometime with Nat Adderley Jr., who's uh, Nat Adderley Sr.'s son, yeah. and uh, you know, share with him, uh, you know, my love for his uncle and and all that I've been doing here, and it's, you know, I just that that would be a dream. But I never met Cannonball himself. Interesting. So I saw that Doctor Oz was on your album cover. <laughs> on my uh, website, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's. There's this uh, ongoing joke at, uh, at at work. Well, I call it a joke at work. And then if I let my hair grow out just right, uh, uh, I, I can't walk out of a patient room without them saying, you know, you look just like Dr. Oz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you arm wrestled him, who would win? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm all about biking, running, and swimming, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've been to fitness, but he might have stronger arms. But I never, I never even met the guy. But uh, we are this, nearly the same age. I think he's born maybe six months ahead of me, but both born in 1960, and you know both physicians. I think he's a surgeon, um, a emergency physician. But uh, I actually contacted them and, and, and said, you know, I'll bring my uh, I'll bring my 
Quintet or my septet onto the uh, show, and we'll we'll do some code blue tunes, and then we'll talk about uh, chest compression only, you know, uh, CPR. Yeah. And, but I never heard back from him. But I'd still love to do that. Yeah, that'd be great. So, what's the last song or album you listened to before our interview? I will tell you because it was kind of wild. Separate realities was the name of this album I was uh, listening to. Listened to about three tracks before you, right before you called. Very cool. Let me ask you this real quick. As we get kind of towards the end of our interview and have a good, well-rounded view of who you are and what you've done as a musician and as a doctor, how do you want the world to remember you? you know, that's why I made Code Blue. The way I want to be remembered, you know, Miles Davis made this uh, album called uh, Kind of Blue. Yeah. And Gil Evans made an album called um, Old Wine, New Bottles. And those, the, like those two albums in particular, uh, to me, are just like, uh, you know, the most, some, they're just awesome. And they just represent what was going on at the time. And the way I'd want to be remembered is kind of from, about Code Blue, it, it, that, you know, he was a doctor and he played sax pretty good. And he hung out with these guys that were tremendous musicians and put together this project that wasn't worried about making money or getting fame or anything. And it just is some of the best music you're going to hear. Yeah. That's, that's the way I want to be remembered, that this, is, this becomes sort of a classic. And I don't care if it becomes a classic after I die. It's fine. Right. It doesn't have to become a classic this week. But uh, it's uh, getting a lot of positive feedback. So. It's a great album, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It really is. Okay, good. Yeah, you sound really enthusiastic. I want to check out your show. So It's a passion of mine. I can tell. Thank you, sir. All right, Joe. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players doing that jazz all over this country. And thanks to the good doctor, Mr. Doc Stewart, for his time and insight into his craft. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. And for all things Neon Jazz, visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.